from Stanford University and KZSU. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. So just try not to let it get to you. Hang on to the last shred of your self-esteem, although that's kind of impossible sometimes, and eventually you will land a job that doesn't suck. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. There is nothing you can talk to me about that I don't already know. Sound familiar? That's right, it's James Bond, and he's in a bit of trouble, yet again. The fiendish villain Goldfinger has her favorite super spy strapped to a table, legs spread. There's a bright red laser moving slowly and methodically, closer and closer toward, well, let's say the symbolism isn't subtle. This is one of those rare scenes in a James Bond movie where you begin to worry for poor 007, but only slightly. We've seen this movie 22 times and counting, and James Bond always escapes. From 90.1 KZSU in Stanford, California, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm Lee Constantino. Each week we bring you an hour of stories that explore a single question or theme, all written and produced by Stanford students, staff, fellows, and faculty. This week's show, Narrow Escapes, stories that explore what sorts of dire situations we find ourselves trapped in and what we might do to escape them. Take a long drive with me on California wine. On California wine. Most of us don't live lives of glamour or danger, not like Bond. We're not international spies on missions to save the world from evil masterminds. But the fact is, we like the risk of getting caught. In a society obsessed with minimizing danger, taking on risk can sometimes feel like a sort of rebellion. In a world ruled by complex systems, the simple logic of capture and escape can activate some sense of cosmic justice in us. Today on our program, we bring you stories from the Stanford Storytelling Project's Fall Story Contest. We chose our theme because even we at the Stanford Storytelling Project were seduced by the suspense of it all, the suspense of what kinds of stories we'd get. We wanted fiction, memoirs, poetry, anything that would capture our attention or serve as a means of our escape anything that would take the complexity of the world and boil it down to one vital moment of truth. Would we get stories of capture or escape, or maybe a little bit of both? If you want to find out what we got, stay with us. We start with two memoirs and my interviews with their authors. The first is about the desperate desire of one woman, fresh out of college, to escape from her first attempt at respectable employment. The second is the story of an innocent high school shenanigan gone wrong. We finish off our hour on a more frightening note, with a short story that brings us back to a moment of Stanford's past when many women were frightened that they might not escape. First up, we'll hear a memoir by Amanda Glasser called 
Panty Sniffing 101, which reminds us that escaping from your first job after college can be harder than you might think. Amanda managed to do so, but only after enduring some serious discomfort. My first thought when I read the job description for returns processor with the women's retailer was a secretary who deals with angry people. I pictured stressful phone calls to women who wanted pink bras and had gotten puce bodysuits. I thought of stacks of order papers that needed filing and alphabetizing. I thought Xeroxes, faxes, coffee breaks, and wearing pantsuits. Maybe the pantsuits idea was a little far-fetched. My mother's style choices have always tainted my opinions of professionalism. Nevertheless, I was overqualified for the job, being a fresh graduate of Mills College with a BA in international relations, with honors, and I desperately needed the money to pay rent on my very first apartment. I bought myself a new shade of lip gloss and decided on pinstripe pants with a blouse for the interview. At the appointed time, two weeks after my graduation in the sweltering summer heat of California, I went to the main offices of Title IX Sports, resume in hand. I should have started updating my impressions of returns processor when I realized that the main offices were in the warehouse district of Oakland. I should have started imagining dim lighting and stacks of returned merchandise when I was led through the warehouse itself to the back, where the hiring manager awaited. But it wasn't until I was seated in a precarious broken lawn chair beside a burly lesbian dressed in Tiva sandals and a rugby shirt that I actually banished the last thought of wearing pantsuits to work every day. You want some water? She asked me. No, thanks. I was only a little nervous. The hiring manager looked like any one of my classmates for the last four years, right down to the golden sun-bleached leg hair that she proudly did not shave. So you're overqualified, and you went to Mills. The way she said it made me wonder if she was one of my roommate's many conquests. I would have to ask her at a more appropriate time. So I just want to ask, why do you want this job? There are a thousand answers to this question when it comes up in an interview. I think it will be a great opportunity. I would be an asset to the company. Why wouldn't I want this job? And so forth. Any one of those probably would have sufficed, but I settled on, because no one else will hire me and I need the money. Do you know what a returns processor does? She quirked her eyebrow at me, daring me to lie and say that I did. I shook my head. I'm guessing angry phone calls. She chuckled. Some of the time. She took out an algae and water bottle and had a long sip. Most of the time it's opening boxes, folding, putting clothes back where they go in the inventory, that kind of stuff. How much can you bench? I told her. She made a face. Really? I thought since you went to Mills you could... I told her I wasn't on the crew team. Oh well, you look like you can handle lifting 50 pounds. I'm flattered that you think so, I said. Well, bring your social security card tomorrow and we'll get you started. And Amelia? Amanda, I said. Oh, yeah. Well, you'd better get yourself some jeans and a t-shirt. You can take some of the stuff out of the inventory if you don't have anything you're prepared to ruin. And just like that, I had my first job out of college. Somehow it didn't feel like I'd gone very far. I spent day one in training, filling out paperwork, having to call my mom and find out if she was still declaring me as a dependent, and if so, what number I should mark on the W-2, etc. Around lunchtime, I got my employee number and was allowed to punch in for the very first time on the brand new computer system. My name appeared on screen as Amelia. Day two, my handler, a nice lipstick lesbian named Julie, stacked several boxes in front of me and said, I'll walk you through it. I was skittish with the box cutter. Like my father, I'm a klutz. But that first day, I got all the boxes open without a single flesh wound. Unfortunately, the second package of the day was a paper UPS wrapper, tightly bound over a down parka, both of which I sliced through like butter. It happens, said Julie. Wait till you get your first set of panties in a business envelope. Those are fun. About then, I thought to ask if we were provided latex gloves or face masks. Julie made a face and asked why I would want such a thing. I shoved aside mental images of anthrax-induced asphyxiation and poison ivy lace sports tops. No reason, I said. 
This was about the time I opened my first package containing a letter. All of the clothing sent out by the retailer had a comment card that the customer could use in case of a return. The options were in multiple choice. A, wrong item, with a slot so you could fill in the product number of the correct item. B, wrong size, with a place where you could write the size you wanted. C, damaged, which seemed much the same as D, defective, but both were happily provided. Then there was E, didn't like it, F, changed my mind, and G, other. I didn't see why you would need to explain your return so thoroughly, but apparently in women's retail, it's all about choices. This one had been marked E for didn't like it, and from behind the comment card, a pink post-it slipped out. Julie nodded to it, wanting me to pick it up. I must say, said the note, that I am very disappointed with what you people call banana yellow. Have you never seen bananas before? Sincerely, an unhappy customer. Julie smiled in relief. Wow, she was nice. Aside from opening the return package and handling customer dissatisfaction, we also had to care for the merchandise. Items become crumpled in transit and sometimes need a good steaming to get out the wrinkles. Items also become putrid after having been tried on by someone who hasn't bathed in a while, or puked on by a cat, and need to be dry cleaned. Items can also lose buttons or zippers and need the steady hand of a seamstress. And if it's worse than any of that, just throw it in the discount bin, said Julie. We purge it at the end of each season. Day in and day out after those first two days of training, I opened a package, laid out the clothing, and checked the return card. I examined the clothing for rips, stains, missing buttons, and other such mishaps. Next, I smelled the clothing. This part was the most terrifying, and had to determine if the smell was bad, good, or negligible enough to repackage the clothing as new. This is why I stopped ordering clothes online. Next, I had to run a lint roller over everything, even if it was the type of thing that didn't take well to lint rollers, like the hybrid nylon mesh that ripped on contact with sticky surfaces. Lastly, I sent the clothing on to be handled by the refurbishment department, or restored in the inventory by one of the stock people. Or I chucked it into the discount bin, never to see the light of day again. The job was easy, and by easy I mean mind-numbing. Whole days would drift past while I opened, folded, sniffed, and labeled seemingly endless amounts of shirts, skirts, panties, bras, and sundresses. It took me only four days to plow through my entire music collection on my iPod, and the endless drone of NPR on an office radio resulted in my first incident of cutting my finger with a box cutter. The most exciting day I can recall is the time when my coworker put on the World Cup soccer broadcast so we could hear the USA losing to the Czech Republic. Still, the job paid the rent and kept me away from my crazy roommates. I could afford, barely, to treat my boyfriend to a sit-down dinner and buy myself DVDs so I didn't have to pirate them off the internet. And it felt good not to have to ask my parents for money. But like with all jobs, even the ones you enjoy, I had bad days. Days where the box pile didn't get any smaller. Days where I had a headache that wouldn't go away. There were also days when I did get angry customer phone calls and had to placate enraged women with promises of store credit and flattering remarks about their taste. All lies. And then, there were the days when the job itself was out to get me. First, there was a note with the return card reading, This shirt is labeled as a medium, but it's actually a small. I had to resist writing a response of, Congratulations, madam. Your powers of perception are spot on. And sent the shirt to refurbishment to get the deodorant stains out. Second, I got a bra stuffed into an envelope with the return card marked D for defective. I went to chuck it in the discount bin when Julie stopped me and asked me what made the bra defective. I held up the garment so she could see the tire tracks over the left cup. She ran over it with a moped, and I guess it wasn't up to par. Third, on a rainy day towards the end of my fourth week at work, I opened a box containing a rumpled linen skirt. A note had been stapled to the crotch which read, This was not sewn with gender-friendly seams. The reply I drafted inside my head went something like, Dear madam, or quite possibly sir, this is a women's retailer. I'm sure you can find something more to your liking throughout the San Francisco area.
Fourth, I got an angry phone call from a woman who ordered a bra and apparently was sent one of the bras from the discount box. I was made to, on speakerphone because I wasn't about to suffer the woman's rage alone, listen in great detail about the discoloration around the armpits, the beating on the bra straps, and the fact that it was the wrong size in the first place. I wanted to ask her how the thing had smelled, but thought better of it and got my manager to make amends. Then the nail in the coffin. On my birthday, which I was forced to work, I got a little black box, the kind of thing you might find a watch in. There was a note taped to the outside that read, dot, dot, dot. I opened the box against every shrieking instinct in my body. Inside lurked a torn red lace thong that appeared to have yellow semen crusted on the crotch. That day I scrubbed my hands till they bled and gave my two weeks notice. I landed a job in the video games industry only two days later. In the interview, when asked why I wanted the job, I said, because it's got to be better than my last job. The interviewer asked me to elaborate, which I did with the modest summary of the thong incident. I got the call back ten minutes after the interview. Even if I hadn't been so lucky with the video games job, or if I had found it to be gruelingly intensive work, which it wasn't, I'm not really worried about jobs anymore. Finding them can be hard, doing them can be boring, and I've never heard of a job where you didn't feel demoralized once in a while, especially if you get laid off as 20-somethings are prone to. But ultimately, after you've been a professional panty sniffer, after you've set your nose to the crotch of a wetsuit and inhaled until the lights dance behind your eyes, what in corporate America could possibly scare you? I'm speaking with Amanda Glasser, uh, the uh, author of Panty Sniffing 101, one of the uh, winners of the uh, fall Stanford Storytelling Contest, uh, Narrow Escapes and Getting Caught. Hi. Welcome, Amanda. So I, I thought um, I'd uh, maybe give you a chance at first to uh, talk a little bit about writing this story, what, what inspired it, how did you decide to, to put this experience of yours down in a memoir form? Well, for the two and a half months that I worked there, I'd come home every day and just blog this stuff because it got out of it got crazy. I mean, I didn't even put half the really great complaints I remember getting in there. Like the woman that complained that there was a, a tag right where her nipple was and it itched her terribly. And why would we put a tag there? She'd been wearing the shirt backwards. So we actually had an office meeting to determine if we should send the shirt back or not. <laughs> or if that would just make her more mad. What did you decide? Uh, we decided to just forget about it, and we had to throw it in the uh, discount bin, I think, because she had, like, ripped a sleeve putting it on. I think that would have been a clue that she'd been putting it on backwards, but no, not really. It sounds, like, it sounds as if your, your experience scarred you in various ways. Uh, <laughs> I, have to, I have to ask, uh, listening to your story, uh, do, do, you still, uh, do you still avoid buying clothes online? Yes, I avoid it desperately, unless it's something like a hoodie or something. I know that it probably didn't go through that much trauma because of all the things we got back. Jackets never really suffered that much. Pants, sure, underwear always. Socks didn't seem to suffer that much either, but generally the jackets were safe. No cats threw up on those. Were, uh, was underwear ever steam cleaned and resold? Well, steam cleaned. I mean, cleaned is a loose term here. We mostly just steamed it to get the wrinkles out. And cleaned, that's a relative term. By cleaned, they got the color to be the original color. I swear they had bottles of white out just lining, lined up in the refurbishment department. <laughs> kind of alarming. So no, I don't buy intimates online or anything that I might worry about getting a rash from. It's good to know. Um, 
Have you ever uh, run over a bra with a moped? Not that I can remember. I'm seriously considering, though, I want to know how that woman pulled that off. I want to know if she was wearing it when it happened or if she just happened to leave it on the ground or, mm-hmm. or what. But that was pretty impressive. And it had to be a moped because the wheel size was just too big for a bike, too small for a proper motorcycle. It was strange. This felt like Sherlock Holmes trying to figure out how this woman had done this to that bra. We may never know. Uh, so, so let's talk more generally about writing. Um, you, you said you kept a blog about these experiences and uh, uh, you're, you're interested in journalism. Um, uh, what's sort of, what, what, do you, what do you see as sort of the, the mission of your writing? Do, do you do, I mean, do you see writing as something that's always going to be part of your life? It'll always be a part of my life, but I'm a selfish writer. I write for myself, and, you know, I'm not the person that sits at Starbucks planning to write the next great American novel. That, unless America's interested in panties and video games, no. I mostly just write as a way to express myself, as a way to, you know, trash talk people I'm just sick of and don't have the nerve to speak to in real life that way, and as a way to really be funny and entertain people. Because my mother, the only way she can really keep in contact with me is to read my blogs. So I always tried to dress it up for her as a bit of an audience, but generally I'm writing for me. Mm-hmm. And not everybody finds panties really that funny. <laughs> I think the word panties itself is kind of funny. Oh, it's hilarious. The only thing funnier than that is yanties. Are you familiar with those? No. What are yanties? Okay, so in track, you have track shorts that have built-in underwear for the sake of convenience. Yeah. And they call them sliders, I guess, in soccer so that boys' nuts don't slide out. But girls call them yanties. And I don't know why, but that was the accepted vernacular all through track in high school. <laughs> oh, I, I, I never, I wasn't on the track team myself, so... Oh, the things you can learn. Yeah. Uh, do you have a Do you have a blog you want to share with the world or a website? Oh, not particularly. I blog for Kotaku now publicly, so you can go there and watch me try to articulate video games, which is almost harder than articulating underwear that's stained and awful and scary. But it's it's been a really great experience to write for Kotaku because I have to write for an audience. I can't be selfish like I normally am. But my private blog is still a very selfish endeavor and secretly hidden somewhere. Although, not that secret. I imagine if you dug, you could find it. But hope you like reading about angst, because that's pretty much all that winds up in there now. So you'd point people to the Kotaku blog. Oh, yeah. If you, especially if you like video games. What are you doing if you're not reading Kotaku? Don't tell me you're reading Joystick. Shame, shame. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's a great plug. Um, <laughs> is there anything anything else? Are there, are there other aspects of the story that you'd, you'd want to talk about or highlight? Pretty much just to tell people, especially coming out of undergrad, especially from a prestigious university like Stanford or a small college like Mills, you know, get it out of your head that you're going to walk into the dream job straight out. You're going to be hungry. You're going to miss your rent maybe once or twice. You're going to apply to millions of jobs and not get any of them. Don't take it personally and don't give up because so many Millsbians especially just folded and went straight home to mommy and daddy and still wonder why they couldn't get that job in marketing. No one takes you seriously. You have to keep trying until they do. So just try not to let it get to you. Hang on to the last shred of your self-esteem. Although that's kind of impossible sometimes, and eventually you will land a job that doesn't suck. They're called Millsbians. Sometimes it gets Amanda Glasser is receiving a master's in journalism at Stanford. In our second segment, Erica Harrell recalls her close encounter with seemingly abandoned tires and with the law. She calls the story of capture and escape her tire catastrophe. 
Why, you ask, did we think it would be a good idea to steal old tires from the back of a bowling alley? That is a question I still don't quite know the answer to. It was my junior year of high school and I was bowling with some friends at Lake Forest Lanes. Lake Forest Lanes is the kind of place that has one of those claw machines you can never actually win anything from. The kind of place that becomes a mecca for high school students when everything else is closed. The kind of place that offers to put nacho cheese on it no matter what it was you ordered. I hate nacho cheese. I should have taken this as a bad omen. At any rate, my friends and I decided to spend a particularly slow Friday night at L squared. Or is 2L more mathematically correct? It was a pretty standard night of bowling. We all rented shoes. Somebody forgot to bring a pair of socks, because somebody always forgets to bring a pair of socks. I was laughed at for ordering a pair of kitty shoes with Velcro straps rather than laces, because my midget feet are too small to fit into adult-sized bowling shoes. And the game began. We bowled till we bored, but when we had finished, we weren't ready to go home yet, so we stalled by driving around the parking lot in circles. As our circles became larger and more misshapen, we found ourselves discovering more and more of the area surrounding Lake Forest. And then we saw it, the treasure trove behind the alley, a mound of old, used tires, seemingly ownerless and begging to be rescued from the depths of disuse. At this point, I think it's important to mention the fact that I was the only girl in our group, and that I was the one who had driven. At any rate, the boys were ecstatic. There were a wealth of things we could do with old tires. Rebelliously leave them on our friends' front lawns as a late-night courtesy, analogous to a mint on one's pillow at a swank hotel. Roll them down that one really big hill by Salt Creek Beach and then run back uphill and do it again. Make an obstacle course for painful and intense mock military training. The possibilities were endless, and I was at once persuaded to pop the trunk and let the boys start loading her up. My friend Butter had the first tire halfway in when the police got there. I stood dumbfounded as the cops explained that because I had been sitting in the driver's seat, I would be held responsible. My mind was racing. For what? Grand Theft Tire? Is there such a thing? Good cop politely asked the boys to have a seat on the curb while bad cop grunted something about my license, and I opened my wallet only to discover that it was not, in fact, there. I then realized that I had used my license to buy a parking permit at school earlier that week and must have forgotten to return it to its residence within my pleather billfold. The cops asked if I had any other form of identification, and I quickly brandished my Disneyland pass, the only card in my wallet that had both my name and picture on it. Bad cop clipped my Disneyland pass to his utility belt and started talking and waving his arms around, but I couldn't understand a word of what he was saying because all I could think about was how ridiculous my annual pass to the happiest place on earth looked hanging from his belt. He may as well have been wearing Mickey Mouse ears or licking one of those big, vibrant Mickey Mouse head lollipops. Well, when I was directed to sit on the front of my car with my hands on the hood in plain sight, I re-entered reality, and the waterworks started because, let's face it, I'm emotional. Suffice it to say, then, that this encounter with the police was nothing short of scarring for me. As I sat on the hood of my car, eyes leaking black, mascara-colored tears down my face and neck, I started frantically envisioning my bleak future post-tire catastrophe. I began to sweat profusely. I felt like a rabid raccoon held captive. I was first asked, What exactly were you going to do with the tires? To which I replied, just roll them down a hill 
or leave them on people's lawns or something? I then wondered if the plan had sounded that ridiculous when Butter proposed it earlier. Bad Cop responded with an unreassuring, I see. So naturally, I had to come back with, will this go on my permanent record? I've never been arrested. Please, officer, you don't understand. I have to get into a good college. I get really good grades. I then asked myself if I had actually just said that, and I heard the words, we're going to have to call your parents, echoing around me in slow motion. I wanted to scream, I have a Disneyland pass for Christ's sake. I'm not a criminal. Can't you just let me go unscathed? But I instead continued to cry as I was already locked into disaster mode. Well, the parents were called, but I guess all's well that ends well, and our escapades ended about as well as we could have hoped for them to. Exhibit Tire was returned to the heap, my past was restored to me, and my friends and I were released without being fingerprinted, cuffed, ticketed, or fined. As I drove home a mascara-stained mess, I vowed to never again steal tires and to continue to preach my story in hopes that my newfound wisdom would prevent future teens from ever attempting to do so. Erica came into our studio and we had a conversation about her story. I began the interview by asking her about her connection to Stanford. I'm a sophomore. I'm potentially going to be an English major with an emphasis on creative writing. Um, I'm involved in Face Aids, uh, ASSU sophomore cabinet. Um, more recently, I joined the Stanford Film Society, and I'm a member of Pi Beta Phi. Was this your most traumatizing experience of getting caught? Probably. I mean, I guess the most traumatizing just because I haven't really, you know, done anything that would warrant, like, I don't know, a more traumatizing experience if I had been caught by the cops, you know, besides, like, breaking into the old chemistry building at Stanford, which I'm sure everyone, almost, at least, has done at some point. Really? Everyone? Yeah. I think I know a lot of people who've done it, and I know someone who actually got arrested for doing it. I don't know. It's kind of, you know, it's like haunted or whatever. Not actually, but it's just kind of creepy in there. There's a lot of writing on the walls, and it's all dark and dingy. I don't know, that kind of thing. People are always in there, like, ready to jump out and scare you when you're walking through the halls, which is fun, too, but... When I went, that happened to me (laughs) and my friends, which was kind of fun. I mean, yeah, I guess it was particularly traumatizing because, I mean, my parents have such, like, this perception of me that is just, like, you know, their little girl. And, like, the fact that they were called and that this was right after um, or maybe right as we were about to hear, start hearing back from colleges. So that was totally on my mind at the time, and that's why when the cops started talking about, you know, how I would be held responsible, like, this guy was really scary. He was huge, 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 not nice at all. The type of person that you, it's not easy to make smile. Um, so, yeah, he was really freaking me out. And, it, I mean, I'm sure, like, today when I think back on it that it was all talk, you know, But I was just really scared because I'd never really had, like, such an extreme run-in with the law. But, I mean, I also thought afterwards, like, I was so angry about it because it was just so ridiculous. Like, 
they were very clearly like old used tires that someone had dumped in the back like next to the dumpster. I mean, I don't I feel like that's not necessarily like I don't know if that doesn't warrant like, oh, you know, you could potentially be arrested for theft, blah, 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 you know. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, I guess I guess that's why it was pretty traumatizing for me. Also, I'm a very emotional person, and I think that's also something that comes into play in my style of writing and the whole exaggeration bit because I love drama. I just, I love the drama. Uh, um, I love to bring out drama and stories. You know, I'm really good at kind of making situations seem, you know, worse or crazier than they actually were in a way, uh, just, you know, based on the way that I describe them. How did your parents react to this uh, close encounter with the law? Actually, they were a lot better about it than I thought they they were going to be. Um my dad kind of laughed it off because he was really crazy. When I'm back home, at least, and here a little bit, I'm kind of like one of the guys. In a way, I hang out with a lot of boys. And they love doing crazy things like this for whatever reason. And I mean, I just, I guess it's just fun, you know, to feel like you're doing something dangerous or that you could get caught for, you could get in trouble for, you know. Like, I'm sure, like, everyone has experienced that at some point where, you know, you almost kind of want to do something more because it seems like, I don't know, there's the, like, potential for getting caught. But um, I guess, yeah, just kind of for, like, the thrill. It was exhilarating, you know, and we were really ready to go use those tires. Also, where I live um, in high school, it was a huge thing to, like, you know, leave random things on people's lawns. Like, we would cone people all the time, like, sign people. You know, you grab those construction signs and signs from, um, like, people running for office and, like, stick a bunch of them in one person's lawn. Just do craziness like that. So I guess it's kind of like it was also a pretty typical thing that we did, like, fairly often anyway. What inspired you to submit this story? When I read the prompt about close calls and getting caught, this was the first thing that came to mind for me, just because it was so ridiculous and random, not really the typical, like, getting caught story. Quite jarring for me at the time. So I guess, I don't know, it's kind of stuck in my memory. Maybe let's uh, transition and uh, let's talk a little bit more uh, about your life here. Um, can you talk about what creative writing classes you've taken while you've been at Stanford? I, I took creative nonfiction last quarter, and it was probably the best class I've taken at Stanford so far. I just, I really loved it, and I just think it's, it's just really fun to write about things you know, but, you know, kind of give them an edge based on your perspective. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I do enjoy it a lot, though. And I feel like people enjoy reading my stories that are memoirs more, too, just because it, it makes it, I don't know, they're, they're almost more funny because they're true stories or more, I don't know, they hit closer to home and they're just more, like, richer because they're real, like they actually happened. What drew you to uh, memoir specifically? And uh, how do you see writing memoirs in relation to, say, fiction? With memoir, I feel more comfortable using, like, my own voice. I don't know. It's it's different than fiction. I mean, fiction, obviously, you write from, like, the author uses their voice. But from memoir, I just, I write it as I think it. So I guess, 
like, I don't, I mean, I do craft the words, but it's just kind of, you know, my thoughts on paper in a way. And, like, I just have, you know, kind of a quirky sense of humor. So, but I'm a huge fan of exaggeration, and I think that's also, like, one thing that kind of distinguishes my stories because, I mean, obviously a lot of things are exaggerated, but people still appreciate, you know, the emotion that I'm trying to, to demonstrate in them. And, um, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, it's fun, you know? It's fun to exaggerate. All in high school, I used to, I did a lot of acting. I was actually in a school of the arts. I ha I've had a lot of experience with drama and I love it. Um, I haven't really done as much at Stanford as I would have liked, but my two passions are like theater and writing. And uh, I have a lot of friends who are also really interested in, in going into kind of like the film and television industry. And so I kind of got like, you know, screenwriting like fever from them. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, Face AIDS? It's a student-run organization um, founded by Stanford students to kind of just raise awareness and fundraise for the AIDS pandemic, um, specifically in Africa and rural R Rwanda. So I guess um, mostly on the Stanford campus, we just, I mean, our chief um, mechanism for fundraising is pin sales. So we sell um, these little white pins with the red AIDS ribbon on them. They're beaded pins. Um, I don't know if you've seen them around campus at all, but yeah, so we sell those and we just have a lot of events on campus to raise awareness, mostly tabling and, you know, we try to get involved with other organizations and obviously like we, we work very closely with Stanford Dance Marathon um, because all of the money that we fundraise goes to Partners in Health and Partners in Health then uses the money that we've raised for rural Rwanda, like health, like clinics and, you know, whatever they need, basically. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the same or the same beneficiary that Dance Marathon has. So, I mean, we share that in common, so it just makes sense that we should work together on that. Thanks for coming in today, Erica. Erica Harrell is a sophomore at Stanford. We end our program today with an unsettling story about a man who lives in the cracks of society, watching us, waiting, waiting for the right time. I won't say what he's waiting for. Mandy McCallum brings us the story of the interstitial man. He arrived in Cardinal Terrace during a heat wave and knew he had come to the right place. When it was hot, people left windows and doors open, sometimes all night long. It made his job easier. He had lived in many college towns, but he liked this one best of all because of the California weather and because of the abandoned car he had stumbled across in the course of his restless investigations. The car eliminated the need for a daytime job to make the rent and left him free to concentrate on his real work. Even in the autumn, as it was now, the nights were sufficiently bonny to make the car a comfortable home. He remembered Seattle with a shudder. There had been co-eds at the university, but the rain and cold had finally driven him south. 
With the money he saved on rent, he could buy a limited membership at a local health club and have a place to shave and shower. It was important to him to be clean. The terrace was a long, narrow neighborhood with 12 streets of two blocks each. Each of the 12 streets was named for a college or university. Scripps was his favorite because of its high concentration of single young women, though so far he hadn't chosen anyone there yet. College Terrace was sandwiched between the campus and an open space preserve. Both of these adjoining areas had come in handy over time. He found the shell of the car in a desolate corner of the nature preserve, half hidden by the feathery branches of red pepper trees. He was a big man, over six foot five, with the awkward gangling body of an adolescent whose physique has outgrown his mental and emotional maturity. His brown hair flopped over his forehead, giving him the vulnerable look of someone who always wears glasses, caught without them. His size was deceptive. He was light on his feet and surprisingly fast, and even his unusual height did not make him particularly noticeable. Though he had roamed the terrace for only six months, he already knew every shortcut, every alley, every quick escape through the rabbit warren of rental cottages. Of course, the neighborhood was not restricted to students, but they gave it the casual, hang-loose flavor that he appreciated. He was too old to be a student, well, he could be a graduate student, but he was just as smart as any of them. He had given him some new private name, the interstitial man. He liked it for two reasons. First, because it sounded like a superhero, and second, because he knew what it meant, and he bet some of those snooty college kids didn't. It described him, too. Sometimes he felt invisible, as if he had fallen through the cracks. No one noticed him, and no one could find him when he slipped down streets and alleys and into the wilds of the campus or the nature preserve. Yet in one way, everyone knew who he was. On every street corner in the terrace, flyers with a police artist composite had been tacked to signposts. He liked the flyers because the picture made him look almost handsome. They hadn't got it right, though. The flyers had happened because of that girl, the one who her diaphragm in. He had made a mistake and agreed. When it was almost too late, he came to his senses and caught her, just as she was locking herself into the bathroom. She fought him, though, and broke the chain of this metal that the fathers had given him so many years ago. He had tried to fix the chain, but sometimes the clasp came loose and he felt the metal slip down his chest before he caught it, just in time, and refastened the necklace around his throat. The girl had torn away part of the mask, too, but he could tell by the flyers that she hadn't really seen him. He had barely gotten away that time. Even during the day, he wandered the terrace restlessly, moving from coffee shop to grocery store to park bench, always watching and listening. This constant movement was his job, the means to an end. But he was not just a nine-to-five worker. He moonlighted, too. clothes and listening. Two girls he recognized came in. Sheila he had seen before. She was a buxom blonde with brown eyes. She lived alone but wasn't his type. Molly, the girl with her, he had noticed just recently. 
She was wearing a white sweater. He stared at it, remembering that time in high school, fighting nausea. Neither girl looked at him. He was invisible. He thought that if anyone looked at him and really saw him, he would vanish forever. Sometimes he thought it was the scarring on his face that made him invisible. Other times he knew it was the power of the new name, protecting him like a magic cloak, like his St. Christopher medal. He liked girls who looked like Molly, his type, liked the slim boyish hips, the small gentle breasts, the straight shiny fall of dark hair. These looks were disturbingly familiar. The girls were talking about men. They did this a lot, but never about him, except when they didn't know that they were. Sheila rolled her brown eyes and gave voice to one of her faintly loony pronouncements. I think he gives off more heat than light. Know what I mean? He's just not like centered. Molly nodded, but she was only half listening. She looked more sensible than Sheila. She flipped her glossy dark hair behind her shoulders, just like that girl in high school. He left the laundromat and went down the street. He would have to choose soon. He could feel it. And on the whole, he thought it would be Molly. Of course, she had a dog, and he would have to collect more data. Collecting data was what he was good at, what he had been trained for by the fathers at the boys' home. The fathers had recognized his attention to detail and had been forward-thinking enough to steer him towards computer training. Because of this, he never had trouble finding a job or earning money. He had a lot of money saved from his last job in Seattle. He wasn't dumb. He was careful and thorough. It was amazing what you could learn just by watching someone's house, following her daily routine, particularly when you were invisible. Thinking about the fathers reminded him that he hadn't been to confession lately. There was a Catholic church at the edge of the terrace, and he made his way to it now. He liked the priest, Father O'Hagan, who to him more in sorrow than in anger as they sat together in the dim recesses of the confessional, separated by an opaque screen. He didn't always confess his deeds, just his thoughts, but those seemed enough to keep the priest interested. He entered the curtained wooden booth, keeping his face slightly averted, just in case. He believed in the seal of the confessional, but it never hurt to be careful. He liked the old-fashioned booth with its opaque screen like a double mask, shielding both his own identity and that of the priest. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Dimly, he could see the outline of the priest, his face a blank mask, profile turned towards the screen, head leaning forward into one hand. It has been two weeks since my last confession. What is the nature of your sin, my son? I have impure thoughts, Father. The priest's posture changed behind the screen as he straightened and leaned forward, as if responding to a familiar cue. The interstitial man wondered briefly if the priest recognized his voice, quickly dismissed the thought, and plunged into the luxury of confession. I think about doing things with my knife, about, well, what kinds of things? The interstitial man frowned. He liked to make his confession at his own pace. Father O'Hagan seemed impatient, wanting to cut to the chase. He continued, but with dampened enthusiasm. With women, with naked women. Something about the father's sudden, intense silence put him off. 
He rose abruptly, saying, That's all, and brushed through the curtains of the cubicle, heedless of Father O'Hagan calling after him, offering absolution. Halloween was coming. The students got excited, just like children. They dressed up and went to parties. He'd seen it before. It would be a good time. Molly was going to a party. He had heard her talking about her costume with Sheila. I'm going to go as the rapist, she had announced with a certain bravado. Oh, Molly, Sheila was shocked. Don't even joke about it. How would you do it anyway, she added, curiosity overcoming her repulsion. It's an easy costume, dark top, dark pants, and a stocking to pull over my face. A knife, of course. Oh, and Michael can get me a pair of those rubber surgical gloves from his job at the hospital. Well, I think it's bad karma, Sheila said earnestly. It'll come back on you. Look, Sheila, if I can't laugh about it, I'll go crazy. I'm the one who fits his profile, remember, not you. He was the one had to laugh, though he felt angry, too. Oh, she was smart, that Molly. She even knew where the gloves came from. Security in the emergency room of the university hospital was shockingly lax. She wasn't as smart as he was, though. She could copy him, but shouldn't be him. He was still the interstitial man, no matter what costume she wore. He was sorry she was going to a party. It might complicate things, but he would figure that out later. First, he had to take care of the dog. Halloween was only a week away. Night was his best time in the terrace. He saw well in the dark, always had. He felt cloaked, swathed in evening, better than any mask, any hiding place. At night, he checked on the homes of the denizens of the terrace who interested him the most. Many left their curtains parted, framing the blazing stages of the rooms within. He could see in, but they could not see out. He waited for the night, when he knew she had an evening seminar until nine o'clock. It wasn't something he usually did, but he liked Molly. She was a nice girl, didn't sleep around like some of the others, so decided to take the risk. He caught the thing by the throat before it could yelp. The frantic squirming and bunching of muscles beneath the warm fur reminded him of the palpitations and feathery struggles of the birds he used to trap and crushed to death in his hands when he was a boy. He felt simultaneously nauseous and powerful. The knife slashed, there was blood, a pool of it. As always, the sight of it made him dizzy. The dog gave a final whimper, its only sound, as he released it to death. Even though he was weak and sick, he dragged the carcass to the open space and hid it near the car. He knew that he should remove the identification tags, but he couldn't bring himself to touch the animal again. After the dog, he went to confession again. This time he told what he had done. The priest urged him to get help, to turn himself in. Then to his horror, Father O'Hagan stood up and started to come around the screen. For an awful second, their eyes met before he rushed out of the confessional in rage and panic. It was just a dog, for Christ's sake. And what about the seal of the confessional? The priest called after him, but he dived down an alleyway, frantically seeking invisibility. 
Only later did he notice that he had lost his St. Christopher, his amulet. The police called a neighborhood watch meeting. Molly went, and so did he, keeping well to the back of the auditorium. It was interesting to hear them all talking about him, to find out what they knew and didn't know. He almost forgot about Molly as he listened, fascinated. We're urging particular caution on Halloween night, said the uniformed policeman at the podium. He's due for another girl, according to the graph we've made of time intervals between attacks. He indicated the chart, many times enlarged by the overhead projection on the screen behind the podium. With all the confusion of trick-or-treaters, we think this might be the night he strikes. So they knew the night, but they didn't know who or where. All around him, people murmured to each other and shifted anxiously in their chairs. A wave of euphoric omnipotence broke over the interstitial man, and he knew himself immensely superior to these frightened human beings. He left right before the meeting broke up and almost bumped into Father O'Hagan, who was hurrying in. He recoiled, the euphoria vanishing and his heart pounding, but the priest just murmured, pardon me, without looking at him and headed for the podium. The interstitial man was so anxious to get away that he didn't stop to wonder what the treacherous father was doing there. The next time he saw Molly was at the cellar, a neighborhood coffee bar that he frequented for information gathering purposes. Here, as elsewhere, he was invisible. Molly did not look happy. In fact, she was weeping. A young man with smooth skin, protective arm around her shoulders comforted her. The interstitial man took his coffee to a corner table near enough to hear their conversation. Molly was talking about her dog. I just know something has happened to Brandy. She wouldn't just wander off. Maybe it's this rapist guy, the boy suggested. Why would he have anything to do with it? He doesn't rape dogs. Maybe he wants to make sure that you're really alone. Maybe you're his next victim. None of the others had dogs, you know. Molly looked startled. Obviously, this idea had not occurred to her. But she stopped crying, and her face hardened as she accepted the possibility. If he's hurt her, but no. He's never really hurt anybody aside from the rape. Besides, Brandy is so gentle, no one would want to hurt her. She never even barks at the mailman. What do we really know about the guy, anyway? The boy was persistent. He could be capable of anything. He could have hurt somebody before. The interstitial man nervously sloshed coffee in his saucer. But there was no way this boy could know. The police had not released the information about the knife slashes across the backs of the hands, the slashes he made to punish him, these girls. The next words jolted him. He's got to be a real loony. Molly's boyfriend, or whoever he was, was a royal asshole. That kind of creep just burned him up. Who did he think he was talking about anyway? He kept listening through a red fog of rage. Molly was talking again. I'm not going to the Halloween party. I just don't feel like it. I think I'll stay home and pass out candy to the kids and do some studying. Don't you want me to stay with you? You know the cops said you're just the type he goes after. No, I'll be all right, but... The voices dropped, murmuring. They leaned towards each other, talking softly. He couldn't hear, but it didn't matter. He had found out what he needed to know. 
He plucked nervously at his throat where the St. Christopher medal used to hang, wanting to caress his good luck piece. Without it, he felt exposed, but that was stupid, superstitious. Molly's tears and her companion's calumnies had made him tense and restless. He had found it out what he needed to know. Molly would not be going to the party. The last piece was in place. He left hastily, for once forgetting to be careful, to be alert. And so he missed the really important data. On Halloween night, he waited until one in the morning. It was a busy night in the terrace. He noticed that the police patrols had doubled. They thought they were so inconspicuous, but not to him. He was too smart for them. The day had begun badly, though. He had returned from his nocturnal prowling to the open space, only to find that someone had been snooping in the abandoned car. His meticulous arrangement of his meager possessions had been ever so slightly disturbed, even though nothing had been removed. Probably just neighborhood kids, but uneasiness forced him to check on the dog. Disbelief warred with a rising vertigo as he stared at the clotted, matted hollow in the leaves, the only sign that the corpse had ever been there. Why hadn't he removed those tags? But it was too late now. All his plans were in place. Even after the trick-or-treaters stopped, it seemed as if there were people in the streets for a long time. That was all right. The more people about, the less possibility that anyone would notice him. He was patient. He could wait. Her two-room cottage was perfect. It was surrounded by tall hedges that completely screened it from the streets. All the lights were out, but he didn't need lights. He already knew where everything was. Once he began, he was completely calm and relaxed. He had done it so many times before. First he listened for any sound or movement from the house and then silently and deftly clipped the phone wires with the knife he always carried. He was already wearing the latex gloves. Right before he entered, he pulled a pair of pantyhose down over his head and covered his face. It was funny, but in this act, he, who was invisible, became visible. The front door was unlocked. This did not surprise him, it often was. He always checked it first before he tried any of the windows. He stepped inside and flicked out the knife, ready in his hand. Then a light went on, dazzling him. When his vision cleared, he saw Molly standing in the doorway across the room. Not in bed, after all. She seemed small and somber, a tiny figure of judgment in her jeans and turtleneck sweater. Bewildered and disoriented, he stood, staring. A fatal hesitation. The little figure in dark clothing held out her hand. This is yours, isn't it? He saw the St. Christopher medal and its chain gleam in the palm of the cupped hand and stepped forward to receive it. Suddenly, the room was filled with people. Father O'Hagan, the boy Michael, men in police uniforms. Across the room, Molly looked directly at him and saw him. Though his mask stayed in place, he knew the scars blazed clear. The others were around him now, taking the knife from his limp grasp, 
holding his unresisting arms. The crack widened and the interstitial man fell all the way through, screaming for mother. Mandy McCalla is an assistant to the deputy director of the Hoover Institution and an administrator in the institution's media fellow program. Her story was inspired by the college terrorist rapist who was active from 1971 to 1979 when Mandy was a young single woman living in College Terrace. Today's program was produced by Charlie Mintz and myself, Lee Constantino, with direction from Jonah Willengance and Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Daniel Hirsch, Matt Larson, Colleen Hansen, and Kobe Van Tonder for vital help in putting this show together. Thanks and congratulations to Amanda Glasser, Erica Harrell, and Mandy McCalla, winners of our first Stanford Storytelling Project Story Contest, the first, we hope, of many. Congratulations also to Jeremy Keishan for The First Class Prank and Megan Berman for an untitled piece, which both won honorable mentions. And a big thank you to all our hardworking alumni volunteers who helped judge this contest. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity in the Arts, Stanford's Oral Communications Program, Stanford Continuing Studies, and the Hume Writing Center. Remember, you can find a podcast of this and every episode of the Stanford Storytelling Project on Stanford iTunes and on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. This is our last program of the winter quarter. Tune in next quarter when we'll bring you superheroes, apocalypses, and gym class. For Narrow Escapes, the Stanford Storytelling Project, and KZSU Stanford, I'm Lee Constantino.